You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Let me just say this. I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes. But in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. You know what it was? It was a little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he sent all the way from Texas. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this fourth day of April, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners back to the podcast and invite them all, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com, AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ClimateGate.tv, and ReportageBook.com, as well as those websites that help to support and broadcast our work, including ZeroPointRadio.com, Archive.org, RadioForAll.net, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, TragedyAndHope.com, and now KWMD, Alaska's proud Pacifica affiliate, which is broadcasting the program Wednesday nights at 9pm. And you can check them out at OneSkyRadio.com. Once again, I'd like to thank everyone who has donated for the 2020 Hindsight Censorship on the Frontline DVD pledge drive, and let you know that the DVDs have arrived and that they are now in the process of being shipped out, so they should start arriving this week. Uh, Once again, thank you to everyone who has donated so far, and within the next couple of weeks, hopefully everyone who has donated will receive their DVD. And, of course, once again, I'd like to remind all of those listeners who have not yet donated to the Pledge Drive that your support is needed to continue expanding and growing this podcast and increasing the technology side of what we're doing including not only a new second-hand laptop that I'd like to buy to help run the website, but also a new external hard disk so that I can back up some of the incredibly large files that I produce on almost a daily basis here in the work that I'm doing. So once again, all of your support is greatly appreciated, and you can find out how to support us at the homepage CorbettReport.com. Also this week, I received an email from the organizers of a conference called Understanding Deep Politics that's going to be taking place from May 14th to 16th at University Inn and Conference Center in Santa Cruz, California. So if people are interested in this conference, which threatens to reveal the driving forces behind world events and create alternative solutions, you can go check out more information about them at their website, understandingdeeppolitics.org. And if you are lucky enough to be in the Santa Cruz area on the weekend of May 14th to 16th, you will get to see such speakers as Ellen Brown, Professor David Ray Griffin, Annie Michon, Jim Mars, Peter Dale Scott, Barry Zwicker, and many others. So it promises to be an extremely interesting event. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's Sunday update. Hello. 
This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this fourth day of April 2010. And now for the real news. Biometric national ID is in the news once again this week, as governments around the world work in a coordinated effort to implement national identification cards with RFID receiver transmitters and biometric details like fingerprints and iris scans. In the U.S., Senators Chuck Schumer and Lindsey Graham are pressing for a national biometric ID that will require every worker in America to carry a card with their fingerprints and other details. Well, the, the, the recent news, of course, Chuck Schumer and Lindsey Graham, Democrat and Republican, have gotten together to push for something that uh, this national worker ID card, which would be a biometric ID card. Now, if I were putting together a biometric ID card and I were them, I'll tell you, I'd put an RFID tag in it. We already know that the nation of China has put an RFID tag into all of its national ID cards. We already know that Mexico, with the help of U.S. corporations, is implementing a biometric ID that's going to involve an iris scan for every Mexican citizen. The Indian government is rolling this out, and it's just a matter of time before all of these ID cards have RFID in them. Now, here's where this gets interesting. The microchip in the RFID national ID cards of China, for example, is the same technology, just on a slightly different frequency, but it's the same technology as the microchip implant that you can put right into your hand. In India, the world's first biometric census began this week, with the Indian government hoping to begin putting the vast majority of its 1.2 billion citizens, everyone over age 15, in a gigantic database that will contain digital photographs and fingerprints. Biometric details, meaning you'll have fingerprinting. Uh, will you be doing it like all and ten fingers, getting it ready for the uh, ID cards? Yes, we would be getting the ten uh, fingerprints. Uh, we would also be getting the photograph. And if the UID authority uh, uh, decides that even the iris has to be recorded, then that would also be done. And thereafter, uh, we would then be passing on the details in electronic form to the UID authority, which would give us the unique uh, identity number for everybody above the age of 15, and then we would uh, right. uh, okay. give them the smart cards. Last year, the Corbett Report talked to Japanese human rights campaigner Arido Debido about a proposed new IC chip-enabled ID card for foreign residents of Japan. Why is tracking of people necessary? Are we going to face an Orwellian society where we have to keep um, an eye on our every move of our citizens or taxpayers' contributions or residents? It's whatever you enforce upon a segment of the population is going to be material to enforce upon the rest of the population. We've seen this a number of times before. Foreigners in Japan also have to surrender their fingerprints and a digital photograph every time they enter the country, even if they have permanent resident status. The effort is being coordinated around the world behind the scenes by international agreement, as outlined by UK human rights campaigner Nathan Allenby in an article earlier this year, the cards are being harmonized and made interoperable with a common format for data and accessibility under an agreement by the International Civil Aviation Organization, known as ICAO 9303. Within five to ten years, it's estimated that so-called smart cards and other ID containing biometric details will be on file and able to track the movements of 90% of the world's population. In other news, a raid on the Hutari militia in Michigan earlier this week kickstarted another round of corporate media fear-mongering over the supposed rising tide of domestic terrorism.
In the media's feverish attempt to link the group to a wider trend of domestic unrest, the fact that the group was rad radicalized by an FBI informant went almost unreported. The fact was unsurprising to those who know that every major domestic terror threat in the U.S., from the WTC bombing to the OKC bombing to the Fort Dix 6 to the Miami 7, have been the work of paid government informants and provocateurs. In 2009, Alex Jones had one of the members of the Houtari on the program and warned of just such provocateuring. And, and, and a lot of these militia guys get mad because they want to strut around at events and camo and walk around acting tough, and it's like some kind of adolescent, you know, deal or something, and then I see them go to prison. I see them get set up. Anytime somebody's joined a militia, yeah, we're going to case out the local police station. And then you find out it's the cops leading it, and they bust you, and they put a pipe bomb in your car, and it's malicious plan to bomb the police station. And it comes out six months later in federal court that you weren't planning that. In fact, Jones's warning has played out almost exactly as predicted, with the FBI informant in the group provoking them to talk about plans to use pipe bombs against the local police. Now, the corporate news media is in the exact same preparatory stages of conditioning the public to fear anyone who believes in constitutional government that they were engaged in in the mid-1990s, right before the Oklahoma City bombing. Aha, uh -huh. and you living in the woods? No. No, you're not. Is anybody in Montana? Just their plain homes. You're sitting next to Ray Southwell, who does, from Michigan. You're li you, you, you gather in the woods, don't you? In Michigan? When we train? Yeah. That's correct. But you're not living there. I don't quite understand when you say you're living there. I live in northern Michigan, and uh, I have 20 acres that I live on, and there's a house there. Right. It is a strange combination of absurd and scary. You look at the details, for example, that they've posted on their website about the different ranks that they give one another and all these made-up words that sound like they're straight out of a Calvin and Hobbes strip. And then you realize, oh, they're actually plotting to kill police officers and they have advanced weaponry and they're doing military training and they've been charged with incredibly serious crimes. Sort of hard to know, I guess, how to contextualize them on the, uh, 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 on the seriousness scale. Yeah, I think we have in our minds, we sort of think of these people as just, you know, going out on the weekends and playing dress up and playing army. But clearly, some of them are very serious about this. And, and, and we need to keep an eye on them. There's a reason why the FBI is infiltrating these groups, because they really can be very dangerous. The Oklahoma City bombing was itself a false flag provocation to demonize the militia movement and to help the Clinton DOJ pass draconian new laws in the name of anti-terrorism. Reports from the day of the bombing indicate that there were bombs inside the building that were removed by law enforcement that day. In July of 1995, a 31-year veteran of the U.S. Air Force in charge of field research and development of weapons systems released a report demonstrating that the blast that ended up destroying the Murrah building must have come from within. In 1997, the Oklahoma National Guard admitted that a photograph taken just months before the bombing of a rider truck at Camp Gruber was authentic and was being used in weapons testing by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. In 1999, it was revealed that key bombing conspirator Andreas Strassmeier was a government informant and former German intelligence officer. In 2007, bombing conspirator Terry Nichols filed an affidavit revealing that Timothy McVeigh had been in special operations for the U.S. Army and that he was working with at least two paid government provocateurs. Now, many who have recognized the same pattern of militia demonization are bracing for a false flag terrorist event of similar scale as the OKC bombing to be blamed on domestic terrorists as an excuse for expanding the Bush War on Terror police state under Obama.
Finally this week, CNN, which has been one of the networks leading the charge in the demonization of constitutionalists and libertarians, has refused to air an interview it conducted with radio talk show host Alex Jones. The piece was attempting to link Jones's show to the rise of violent domestic unrest, but was unusable because Jones failed to lead into their obviously leading questions. Jones had the foresight to tape his appearance, and the results have been posted to YouTube. I don't advocate shock and awe like CNN did, okay? I don't have the blood of a million dead people on my hands. I'm not a fake liberal who poses like they're against war, that's your question. I didn't kill a million Iraqis like those of you at CNN who push the lies. I'm not a murderer. I think the rhetoric of the mainstream media lying about WMDs has caused a lot of a loss of trust. I think that the banker bailout, they claimed the $784 billion was to unfreeze mortgages, and the next day they said, we're not going to tell you where the money's going, we're not spending it on that. I think that's what's to blame for the rhetoric, and I also know that most of these threats on congressmen and attacks on offices are staged. Here's the Denver Post from 08, Obama workers arrested attacking their own facility in a staged event to get sympathy. So, and I also think the mainstream media promoting the few attacks that have happened and hyping it are going to cause mentally ill, lone nuts to engage in more. And that's why the, the congressman who's, who reportedly got his office shot up is now telling the media to stop hyping this. But the media knows exactly what it's doing. It's hoping a bunch of lone nuts hearing you talk about this 24-7 go out and commit more acts so that you can try to discredit the American people that are exposing the unconstitutional, out-of-control tyranny going on in Congress. Ironically, now that the YouTube video has been viewed hundreds of thousands of times, the interview has likely been seen by more people than it would have had CNN aired it. From 2008 to 2009, the network's viewership dropped a remarkable 62% overall and 77% in primetime, putting it in last place for network news. In 2009 alone, the network's main hosts lost over half their viewers. Some observers note that this puts the plan to demonize constitutionalists ahead of planned false flag provocations in jeopardy. Good job killing those Iraqis with your lies. Now, stay tuned for episode 124 of the Corbett Report podcast, How to Cover Up a Scandal, where we talk to St. John Hunt, son of famed CIA operative E. Howard Hunt, about his father's role in the Watergate burglary and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Welcome to episode 124 of the Corbett Report, How to Cover Up a Scandal. I think by now that many of my long-term listeners will know the basic ways in which a cover-up functions, and one of the most basic is simply to control the inquiry which is attempting to get to the bottom of a scandal. It was the row that became known as Climate Gate. Hackers exposed emails written by a top climate change scientist in which he talked about using a trick to hide the decline in temperature records. The message written by Professor Phil Jones from the University of East Anglia was held up by climate change sceptics as evidence of scientists publishing misleading statistics on global warming. Now Professor Jones has been cleared of any wrongdoing by MPs. The Commons Science and Technology Committee said the professor had simply used colloquialisms there was no dishonesty, bad science, or attempts to mislead. Phil Jones's scientific reputation may be intact, but the committee's report did call for him and his colleagues to make their data and methods public 
saying the university had failed to disclose its records in response to freedom of information requests. Now, once again, I don't think it needs to be explained to my long-term listeners exactly how that is a cover-up, but just in case you needed more on that, we go to climategate.tv for a story from foxnews.com, 31st of March 2010, Climategate UK Parliament Inquiry Results, Scientists Cleared After One Day Probe. Quote, A first investigation into emails leaked from one of the world's leading climate research centers has largely vindicated the scientists involved, although it was based on just a single day of testimony. The House of Commons Science and Technology Committee said Wednesday that they'd seen no evidence to support charges that the University of East Anglia's Climatic Research Unit, or its director, Phil Jones, had tampered with data or perverted the peer review process to exaggerate the threat of global warming, two of the most serious criticisms leveled against the climatologist and his colleagues. In their report, the committee said that, as far as it was able to ascertain, the scientific reputation of Professor Jones and CRU remains intact adding that nothing in the more than 1,000 stolen emails or the controversy kicked up by their publication challenged scientific consensus that global warming is happening and that it is induced by human activity. However, lawmakers stressed that their report, which was written after only a single day of oral testimony, did not cover all the issues and would not be as in-depth as the two other inquiries into the email scandal that are still pending. Phil Willis, the committee's chairman, said the lawmakers had been in a rush to publish something before Britain's next national election, which is widely expected in just over a month's time. End quote. So it is even self-admittedly a whitewash cover-up in order to smooth things over before the national election and to assure everyone that nothing whatsoever is untoward within the sterling halls of British academia. Well, we all know the real agenda behind carbon eugenics and the climate change hoax, but for those who don't, of course, I would suggest climategate.tv as one resource that you can use to keep up to date with the ongoing climategate scam and cover-up. But suffice it to say, it's self-evident how these inquiries are really used as whitewashes to cover up real scandals, and I think that's a mechanism that by now my listeners will be well acquainted with, if only from the 9-11 Commission, but of course there are many, many, many other examples of such whitewash cover-ups. Another way of covering up things entirely is simply to deny an inquiry at all. Of course, even though these inquiries are rigged and the dice is weighted against the truth coming out, there is sometimes the chance that some detail, however small or minute, might actually emerge. Some grain of truth might come out of one of these inquiries that could upset the entire apple cart. And because of that, there are some topics which are so incredibly sensitive that the government won't even risk a whitewash cover-up inquiry that it controls completely because of such information coming out. Now, one example of that is, in fact, the 9-11 Commission, which was not formed for well over one year after the attacks, an absolutely unthinkable amount of time, considering the scale and gravity of what had just occurred. But, nonetheless, the Bush administration was able to hold off and forestall any such public inquiry for over one year before political pressure just became too great for them to bear, and their the inquiry will take away from the war on terror line started to wear off. Yet that is exactly what happened in Britain in the case of the 7-7 bombings, which are 
every bit as much of a false flag operation perpetrated by people within the intelligence agencies and the government itself. But for that very reason, an independent inquiry into those events are completely off the table. The events of 7-7 did not happen the way they've been described. This is not merely a question of interpretation. It is a fact. Hypothesis has been presented as truth. Speculation has been offered as certainty. There are unexplained discrepancies, inexplicable contradictions, and unanswered questions in the official story. What the British public has been presented is, in fact, a complex but contradictory series of lies. One thing that is clear is the terrible loss of life. And yet, despite demands from the Muslim community, the families of the victims and the victim support group, Tony Blair and the Labour government have obstinately rejected calls for a full, independent public inquiry into the attacks. What reasons have they given? We've been told an inquiry would prejudice the current investigation. We've been told an inquiry would prevent the police and government from focusing on future attacks. And we've been told an inquiry would take too much time, cost too much money, and divert resources away from the war on terrorism. Criteria our government unfortunately chose not to apply when deciding to illegally invade Iraq. And we've been told by the Prime Minister himself that a public inquiry would be a ludicrous diversion. Instead, we were offered a narrative to be written by the civil service based entirely on whatever information the police and security services chose to provide them. Tony Blair assured us that all our questions would be answered by this narrative. On December the 14th, he said, I do accept that the people want to know exactly what happened, and we will make sure that they do. And he said, we will publish a full account of all the information we have. And he pledged, we will bring together all the evidence that we have and publish it, so that the people, the victims and others, can see exactly what happened. Well, Tony, the narrative has now been published. It does not tell us exactly what happened. It is not a full account of all the information you have, and it certainly is not all the evidence. So did you mean what you said? Or were those promises just more politically expedient lies? A ludicrous diversion indeed. Well, another method by which scandals are covered up, and one that I'm sure my listeners will be familiar with by now because of our coverage in recent weeks, is the idea of taking those people with inside knowledge of how something really happened or how an operation really went down and covering them up, silencing them, in some cases suiciding them, or simply even ignoring them. I'm referring to the recent episode of this podcast on lessons in resistance whistleblowing, as well as our conversations with FBI whistleblowers like Jane Turner and Sibel Edmonds and the founder of the National Whistleblower Center, Stephen Cohn, among many others that we've been talking to recently, as well as the WikiLeaks and the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative, and many other things besides. But I thought it would be instructive today to take a look at how a scandal can be covered up from the inside by talking to an insider. And when it comes to insiders, perhaps there are no better insiders than the CIA operatives who are puppeteering so many of the events taking place on the world political stage. And when it comes to CIA operatives, perhaps there is none more famous than E. Howard Hunt. (laughs) 
Early spring, 1954, Guatemala. Undercover as an international businessman, a CIA agent blends into the crowds in Guatemala City. Name, E. Howard Hunt. Age, 35. Born in Hamburg, New York in 1918. A Brown University graduate. OSS officer behind the lines in China during World War II. Covert action specialist. Speaks fluent Spanish. CIA director Alan Dulles has sent him to Central America to find out just how loyal ranking officers are to the Guatemalan president. Hunt reports many officers are disloyal. Important information for CIA planning. Guatemala, a genuine banana republic, is dominated by a giant American company. United Fruit not only controls the fruit industry, but also the railroads, the telephone system, even the delivery of mail. Most Guatemalans live in poverty. 75% are illiterate. Life expectancy is 40 years. The peasants believe they are being exploited by United Fruit. Newly elected President Jacobo Arbenz promises agrarian reform and to break United Fruit's monopoly. The CIA believes he is sympathetic to communism and pro-Soviet. Howard Hunt was one of the CIA's top men. We were heavily involved in the recruitment and uh, the infiltration of the the people that we, rec we recruited wanted to go in by parachute or, or by sea and get rid of the devil, uh, Mr. Castro. Castro was such a charismatic leader that there was just no possible antidote to him that would not have meant uh, uh, U.S. overt involvement. And that, of course, was what the United States government wanted to avoid. And of course Eisenhower uh, wanted the American hand totally concealed. And I think the agency learned a, a big lesson from that, that you can't uh, do both. You can't succeed and you can't keep the American hand uh, invisible. Was part of the plan to kill Fidel Castro to do what? To kill Fidel Castro. Well, those are not, that word kill, the verb kill, is not easily used in uh, government communications. Uh, I myself felt that that was the uh, ultimate solution. Because if you had him, you had a caged tiger. And, uh, uh, but we never got that far. Liddy and Hunt are convicted Watergate conspirators and have been identified as the men who burglarized the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist as part of an investigation ordered by President Nixon. Hunt is believed to have told a Washington grand jury about his role in that crime, and the testimony is being sent to the Ellsberg trial in Los Angeles. Now, E. Howard Hunt is best known for his part in the Watergate burglary, a part which he confessed to and which he served time in federal prison for. But people are generally not aware of all of the surrounding context, subtext, pretext, and history, which 
underlines and highlights exactly what it was that E. Howard Hunt was engaged in during the Watergate years and even stretching back, way back into his early time in the CIA. In order to help flesh out what Watergate's significance really was and how it was really covered up, that is, its real significance, I had the honor this week of talking to E. Howard Hunt's son, St. John Hunt. Now, perhaps anyone who has listened to episode 21 of this podcast, Investigate 1122, will know who St. John Hunt is and E. Howard Hunt's broader significance, but right now, let's take a listen to an extract from that interview in which I ask St. John Hunt about his recollections of the night of the Watergate burglary. But uh, on the night, on that particular night, um, I was alone in the house downstairs in my bedroom in the basement. And uh, in the wee hours of the morning, my father came bursting in my room, flipped on the light, uh, the overhead light, and uh, stood in the middle of the room. I, I kind of rubbed my eyes and I sat on the bed. I said, Papa, what's, what's wrong? He, he was disheveled, sweating, tie was loose. Um, you know, his coat was frumpled up. And, um, you know, he said, uh, uh, I need you to come upstairs, uh, get, get some clothes on. I need you to come upstairs right away and, uh, don't ask any questions. So he, then he was gone in a, in a dash. He was back out into the darkness of the basement and, uh, back up, uh, up to his master bedroom where I joined him in a few minutes. He was, uh, pacing around the floor, changing his shirt. Um, he had a bunch of, uh, I saw, I noticed that there was some, uh, credentials on the bed, uh, which had his photograph, but they didn't, they didn't have his name. They had a different, different name on them. And, uh, he had two large green suitcases on his, on the, uh, on the, on the master bed there. And he said, I need you to go in the kitchen, get some Windex and paper towels or some cloths. And I want you to come back here. I want you to get into these suitcases. I want you to wipe everything down, empty the suitcases, wipe the interior down, and then wipe all the, all the contents down and then close them up and wipe the outside down, put some rubber gloves on. And, uh, meanwhile, he was, uh, I think frantically calling, uh, uh, his attorney, um, Douglas Caddy, uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I did as the dutiful son uh, should have done, and I felt very proud that, uh, I mean, I felt uh, uneasy that my father was uh, so visibly upset, but I felt personally very proud, and this was my chance to show my father that I could, I could live up to his expectations. So over the course of the next hour, I wiped down all the, all the uh, photographic and wiretapping uh, eavesdropping equipment that he had in the suitcases and wiped the suitcases down. And then he said, okay, we're ready to go. Let's get him in the trunk of, of his car. He had a green Firebird. And so uh, we drove the equipment out to uh, way out River Road where we lived in Potomac, uh, kind of uh, parallel the old Potomac canals that they used uh, 100 years before. And we drove to a secluded spot about 45 minutes away, and we pulled up to the edge, and he, we flung them out. I helped them, you know, two of us carried each suitcase. They were quite heavy. And we flung them out into the waters of the canal. And then we drove back in, in silence. Uh, my father was just completely preoccupied and, uh, and in a state of uh, near panic. So um, he said, we'll go get some shut-eye and um, we'll, we'll talk about this in the morning. So that was, my, that was really my entry into my father's world. And, um, and it, was, uh, it was pretty frightening. Um, I don't think I got very much sleep that night. He came into my room early, early on. Uh, in the afternoon, um, after a few hours of sleep, and uh, and we continued our um, escapades and our uh, 
our, our missions, which were, uh, among other things, destruction of more evidence, the transference of large amounts of cash from various banks and safe houses into, into new locations. And um, that took about two or three more days. And, um, you know, he was, uh, I think at that point, the, uh, there was a manhunt out for him, or shortly thereafter, uh, I'd, I'd heard in the papers that, uh, that, they, that he was linked to this Watergate thing. He didn't tell me much about it, but uh, he said that he'd been involved in some uh, illegal activities for, for President Nixon, but he said everything was going to be okay, that he'd been assured, uh, uh, you know, that there wasn't going to be any... Uh, any repercussions uh, from his the things that he did, and of course that was not true. He ended up um, pleading guilty after after my mother's uh, death. That's right. Uh, in, your your family paid an, an incredible price for for that incident and, and everything that came from it. Um, did did your father try to construct a, a an alibi or a cover story for his whereabouts on that evening? I don't think so. Um, I think he, he just, uh, he, he was going, he was following the instructions of, uh, of his, uh, of the attorney, which I think was appointed to him initially by someone in the white house. Uh, and that's where, um, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein got wind that, uh, that there was a greater white house connection. Of, of course they found, uh, on the, um, when they, when they arrested the, his break-in team at the Watergate complex, uh, they found a, a little personal phone book um, on the person of uh, in the code of uh, Bernard Barker, who was an old-time uh, uh, friend of my father's. Uh, he had worked with my dad and uh, Frank Sturgis during the Day of Pigs. Um, and um, in that phone book, under uh, under the uh, the letter H, it said E H H White House, and it gave his White House phone number. So um, I think it was uh, Bob Woodward to call that number, and it was my uh, my father was at his desk that day. I think he went to work, tried to act appear nor- as normal as possible. So he went in to his office uh, in the basement of the of the old uh, of of the old um, let's see, it was a, a building that was next to the next to the White House. Anyways, I'm not sure what it was called, but he went to work uh, the following day. Uh, for a few hours, and lo and behold, the phone rings, and it's uh, the Washington Post saying, uh, "Why, why would your number be in the telephone book of one of the Watergate burglars?" <laughs> and my father said, "Oh my God, uh, as uh, in view that this uh, that this uh, matter is under adjudication, uh, I, I, I'm not going to comment and slam the phone down." Well, that really got the whole ball rolling for the Washington Post and the famed soon-to-become-famous reporters Woodward and Bernstein, uh, who, of course, is, uh, whose events were chronicled in the movie All the President's Men. Right. So, so playing out from that incident, tell us about the, the arrest and imprisonment of your father. Well, um, he, uh, after his uh, counsel was appointed uh, by the White House, um, he uh, had to make an appearance, and um, he he pled not guilty, of course. And uh, uh, then he changed attorneys to a, a gentleman named Bittman. But um, he uh, he pled guilty a week after my mother's death, and uh, she died under very mysterious and suspicious circumstances. And um, and many years later, shortly before his death, he he said his primary concern, of course, after he this is a quote, he said after what they did to your mother. Uh, he, he was worried for, he was in fear of our lives, his children's lives. 
And so a week after her death, he pled uh, guilty to uh, conspiracy charges, wiretapping um, and, and such. And he served uh, four years in uh, federal prison. Uh, but prior to that, he had been moved to 14 different local jails around the country. Uh, I think he, they were on the campaign to try to break him down. But he held fast for a long time until my mother uh, died. And then he pled guilty and spent four years in uh, federal prison. And uh, he and I communicated often during that time through letters. And I went up to Connecticut, Danbury, Connecticut, where he was serving um, some of that time. He and Frank were, Frank Sturgis were together uh, in that prison. And... Um, we uh, we had lunch together a few different times. I think I spent the weekend there and visited him and Frank for uh, for that weekend. But uh, that was a very difficult period in his life. You know, he was very depressed, very uh, um, very felt very betrayed. Here's a man that had given not only his um, his life and service to his country, but uh, but allowed uh, you know uh, through no fault of his own, but his his own uh, over, sense of over patriotism that he was used by the by the government and um and he was taking the fall uh while other people were being pardoned he he was obviously carrying out these operations for people that as your mother had warned were using his patriotism to to use that against him and to and to get get him to engage in activities that were not for national security but for personal vendettas and things of that sort so your mother had been absolutely right about that and then unfortunately as you say she did die under extremely mysterious circumstances and i know it's a very painful subject but but can you inform the listeners a little bit more about that sure um when my father was uh, in uh, in in jail, um, uh, pending his uh, the outcome of his uh, of his uh, situation legally uh, for Watergate, um, my mother served as the uh, as the liaison between uh, the White House and the and the other defendants. I'm talking about um, the there was Gordon Liddy and his and uh, there was James McCord, and then there was the five Cubans. Um, and of course, so there was a great need for cash, cash money to pay the legal defenses for the, for the attorneys, for all these people, as well as the ongoing expensive of, of everyday life, uh, uh, you know, bills, uh, mortgage payments and such. So, um, and my mother was, of course, she was no, uh, uh, she was no stranger to uh, in, in, in to covert ops. She had been she had done a a, a lot of uh, colorful things uh, in her capacity uh, in, as a CIA um, uh, agent herself, as a contract agent. But um, what she was doing, she was um, she was um, she was in touch with the with the White House through their liaison. Um, and uh, they uh, they would deposit they would um, see, they would place uh, uh, envelopes full of large amounts of cash in different locations. Three four o'clock in the morning, she would drive off to uh, the uh, D.C. bus terminal, Greyhound bus terminal, and uh, go to a certain locker or go to a telephone booth, and there would be a key taped under the telephone booth, and she would take the key and go to a, the the assigned locker and uh, pick up a large amount of cash, and then she would she would then. Um, um, divide that cash and make sure that all the defendants had their share of the cash. Well, this, this in, in view of the White House, this was uh, blackmail. But in, from from the defendants' perspective, it was uh, it was money that was uh, that was necessary to to pay their legal bills. And of course, my father told me uh, personally that he never felt that he was blackmailing uh, Nixon, but uh, he felt that um, 
that uh, he was abiding by the uh, by the general unspoken rule that if uh, you're uh, it's certainly in the CIA if you're if you're caught abroad by a foreign government and you're and you're imprisoned or jailed uh, that your expenses and your the welfare of your family will be taken care of by the by the United States government so to him it, it, it wasn't a matter of blackmail it was a matter of this is what they had to step up to the plate and and take care of his family as well as the families of the defendants but um, to the White House and and this is where this is where uh, uh, you know people can can really get a sense of how important or how how feared a man like my father was. Um, out of all the people that President Nixon feared, he feared my father the most. And uh, you can uh, people can 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 read the Nixon um, transcripts, or they can they can go to the audio of the smoking gun on YouTube. And you, you'll hear Nixon say, uh, oh, that fellow Hunt, he knows too much. Uh, uh, we'll take a, can, can we pay him? Will it be, you know, we can get a million dollars. We need to pay him. He knows too much. You open up that scab, and uh, there's a lot of things that are going to come out. It's going to make the CIA look bad. It's going to make me look bad. It's going to go into that whole Bay of Pigs thing. And um, in, a, in a book uh, years later written by um, – by uh, by uh, uh, by uh, Haldeman, Bob Haldeman, who was special counsel to the president at the time, he uh, stated in his book uh, *Ends of Power*, I believe it was called, that um, that when Nixon referred to the whole Bay of Pigs thing, that he was in fact using that uh, as a uh, as a way to refer to the Kennedy assassination and a lot of the, the the things that were going on during the during the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we are speaking specifically of um, of Operation 40, which was a, a, a covert group uh, set up by the CIA unbeknownst to President Kennedy, I mean to President uh, Eisenhower at the time, who Nixon served as vice president during Eisenhower's administration. Well, Operation 40 was a group of assassins that were uh, put together by my father uh, for the uh, sole and express purpose of assassinating foreign leaders and dignitaries that were unfriendly to the United States. So they had, and so, and President Nixon, of course, not only knew about this, but approved this off-the-shelf rogue uh, group of, um, there was Corsican uh, assassins with code names, QJ Wynn was one of the code names of, 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 a, of a Corsican hitman, um, and there was uh, David Morales was, uh, was a, um, a, uh, a Latin American, uh, uh, very, very dark um, person that would, would take out these uh, liquidation jobs. Uh, at the behest of the CIA, all of course off the shelf, no paper trail, um, you know, standalone rogue, rogue CIA uh, uh, people and some Cubans too. Uh, so uh, this is one of the things that has been speculated that they were, they were after during the Watergate break-in was Nixon was fearful that they had, uh, he had gotten wind somehow that they that there was they were holding evidence of Nixon's. Um, uh, uh, compliance to the this Operation 40. So let's just see if we've got this all straight in our heads. Part of the Watergate cover-up was to pay off E. Howard Hunt and other White House plumbers in order to shut them up about the whole Bay of Pigs thing, which was really Nixon's code for the JFK assassination. Why on earth would part of covering up Watergate be getting... E. Howard Hunt, who's in prison for the crime, to shut up about the JFK assassination. What does he have to do with that? Oh, that's right. 
Although he'd been long pegged by assassination researchers as someone who was involved in the JFK assassination, and although he had long denied it, on his deathbed he recorded a confession that he had, in fact, been a part of the plot to assassinate JFK, a plot that went at least all the way up the chain of command to LBJ. Not that you'd have heard about that if you got your news from the controlled corporate media. The first thing that came to me was the audio tape which he sent to me uh, in January of, two of 2004. He didn't call me and let me know that, it was, that he was sending it, but uh, one day I, was just, I just checked my mail to pick up my mail and there was a package uh, from my father. There was no explanation of what was on this tape, so I just put the tape in my cassette recorder and uh, in it he outlines uh, his uh, knowledge uh, of uh, the conspiracy which was codenamed uh, uh, the big event. I was a bench warmer on it and uh, I had a reputation for honesty. I think it's essential to refocus on what this information that I've been providing you uh, and you alone by the way consists of what is important in the story is that we've backtracked the chain of command up uh, through uh, up through Cordmeyer and laying the uh, the uh, doings at the doorstep of LBJ. If this is your first time hearing that recording, it should not be surprising that you have never heard this, because the corporate media, the establishment, even the alternative media, has a vested interest in keeping information like this covered up. But nonetheless, it is staggering, absolutely staggering, that one of the people involved in the JFK assassination has actually confessed to being a part of that crime, and was in fact one of the people who had long been pegged as one of the likely people involved in that crime, and yet you will still never hear this discussed when it comes time for the JFK assassination retrospective documentaries on the controlled corporate media news every November 22nd. Information like this is incredible, and thus it was with great interest that I asked St. John Hunt about his father's role in the JFK assassination. Do you think that his confession in his in his last years was an attempt to atone for those acts? No, I don't. Um, I think it was more, uh, and this is his, this is the uh, the uh, the depth of his arrogance. I really think that uh, his need to confess to me uh, his involvement in. Uh, in the, in, the, in the assassination of President Kennedy was not so much a confession or an atonement or um, anything of that sort. I think it was something that he was pr probably proud of, you know, that here he helped carry out this, the murder of the century, you know, and I think he went to his grave feeling that it was justified and necessary. And I think it was something that if, if, if he couldn't, if he couldn't enjoy, uh, it, to, to use that word loosely, if he couldn't enjoy or take credit for that while he was alive, then he was certainly wanted to go down uh, in history, uh, his legacy as being someone that uh, took care of business. And uh, since he he had nothing else to say, there was nothing else he could he could say that was 
that was great about his legacy. Uh, every a lot of things he had been involved in uh, uh, ended in utter disaster and dismal failure. Well, this was one operation which uh, was uh, not only successful but continues to be, um, you know, uh, 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 an item of, of great mystery and, and great concern. Uh, it's probably the, like I said, the the, uh, the murder or the crime of the century, and uh, and he was a part of it. So I think he. I think his need to confess that to me was one of, uh, of arrogance and not atonement. Well, the irony is that the uh, the operation seems to have been so successful that it's uh, that still no one actually knows about it or, or even uh, has heard about it. Uh, one of the most remarkable things is that this this information has now been publicly available for for three years, and yet there has been almost no coverage of this incredible confession in the mainstream mainstream establishment press. Uh, tell us about your attempts to bring this information to the public and what kind of response you've received from the press. Well, um, after my father passed away in January of 2007, I contacted um, uh, 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 an old, old uh, high school uh, uh, chum of mine. Um, we went to prep school together in the East Coast, uh, St. James um, Preparatory School in Maryland, and uh, his name is Eric Hedegaard, and he was a, a staff writer for Rolling Stone magazine. And I contacted him, and I laid out uh, uh, the story as my father told it. And so he flew out to uh, to California from the East Coast, and we spent three days uh, together, a, a reunion, of course, after 30-some years, but also uh, in intense uh, um, interviews. And, um, and then he went back, and uh, they published the story in the May, I think it was May 2007 issue of Rolling Stone with Pink Floyd on the cover. And uh, there was a, um, you know, it was called The Last Testament of E. Howard Hunt. And uh, that was really uh, how the story broke. And then I was contacted by, um, by uh, let's see, I went on coast-to-coast radio. They had me, but uh, none of the mainstream media. Uh, the, the closest I got to mainstream media was Rolling Stone and, of course, uh, Inside Edition. Um, I, I appeared on Inside Edition, about a 10-minute t- uh, segment uh, where I was interviewed and, um and uh, and lay out the uh, uh, the whole JFK thing for them, but uh, beyond that, um, I came close to uh, to a deal with 60 Minutes. Uh, they flew down and uh, uh, I met with them. Uh, they're one of their top executive producers at, in San Francisco for a couple of days of uh, of, uh, of interviews, and uh, they examined the documents and they heard the tape and and uh and they they flew back to new york very excited about this they were going to air a segment on 60 minutes which really would have broken it super internationally i mean 60 minutes was, is the trusted news news source and anything that's on 60 minutes is, is you know it's is, uh, it's got a lot of weight behind it but after a couple of months uh the uh the pressure was on uh 60 minutes uh, their executive producers bowed to the pressure um to uh, to kill the story and um, it just goes to show that, uh, that, that the way the mainstream media handled my story was, in fact, not to handle it at all, not to give it any press, not to refute it, to certainly not to go on record as saying it's not true, because any, any, any press, whether you're uh, acknowledging something or whether you're refuting something, is press. And so they didn't want to, to, to get the story in any kind of... Uh, you know, papers or television beyond what it had already um, been exposed to. 
And um, uh, another example of this is uh, several years ago, the History Channel ran a, a, a series of, um, of uh, documentary films called The Men Who Killed the President. And the eighth and final episode um, was um, uh, a story about how Lyndon Johnson, uh, LBJ, um, was the ultimate uh, source uh, behind the assassination of President Kennedy, not so much in a planning stage or a planning phase, but it, all Johnson had to do was just nod his approval and guarantee that the White House wasn't going to interfere uh, in the investigation or really go into it at all. And um, and uh, the History Channel, the executives at History Channel got uh, very, very serious letters from ex-presidents Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, as well as as, as Lady Bird Johnson, in uh, in retracting uh, that episode, which they never aired again, and they not only did they they remove that episode, but they 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 uh, they aired an episode specially for uh, for Johnson uh, for the Johnson family, uh, refuting that episode that they had aired previously. So I mean, uh, you know, people are still uh, there's a vested interest in uh, in keeping the truth, which is that uh, the assassination was uh, an in-house operation to remove Kennedy. Uh, Johnson was, uh, uh, you know, was uh, the conspiracy was uh, done by CIA people, Cuban people, mafia people, and these were all people already in place that were already working on, were already involved in assassinating people all over the world. So they had the whole thing, the group of guys to do that already in place. And of course, Johnson and Hoover were 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 best friends, and uh, Hoover was about to be retired by Kennedy because he'd reached his retirement age. His mandatory retirement, and the deal was Johnson and and uh, Hoover struck up the deal that uh, you uh, you 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 know you don't investigate. We'll get rid of Kennedy, and uh, and I'll 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 appoint you to a lifetime position as head of the FBI, which is of course what happened. They had the phony Warren Commission, all the cronies Hoover and uh, Ford and all these people, Chief Justice Earl Warren, uh, that were all uh, you know cronies. Uh, 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 and 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 Kennedy haters, so you know that's uh, that's that's the way things are handled. Make no mistake, cover-ups are an ongoing process that are happening each and every day. They are facilitated by the corporate media, whitewash cover-up inquiries, the stripping of legal protections from whistleblowers, and unfortunately, the apathy of the public. But if you are listening to this program, you are already on the path of proving wrong all of those who think that they can keep this information bottled up forever. The grassroots citizens' media is spreading this information far and wide, and the discrepancy between what we're being told through all of the establishment media organizations and what the information actually reveals when one starts to look into it for oneself is so wide the chasm so vast that there is undoubtedly a large section of the population that has or is falling down that hole and discovering that the world is not the way it's being portrayed for us. I ask your help in continuing to spread this information and continuing the collaborative process of putting these pieces of the puzzle together in our ongoing open source intelligence investigation into the scandals that they are trying to cover up. 
That's all for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 125 of The Corbett Report, Old Hickory and the Den of Vipers. Oh, just to cover up, woke your mother up, you were all